This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Welcome to this Coach Developer Conversation. Uh, and today it is Jay Roper who we have on the line. Uh, morning, Jay. How are you doing, Andy? You okay? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Um, yeah, talking to each other across Sheffield uh, via Teams. So a bit of a strange one in this uh, lockdown um, uh, world. But yeah, great to have you on. Um, and I'm wondering, Jay, if you could just uh, start with a little bit of an intro as to, to you and your, your role, but also a little bit of background in terms of how you got to where you are now. Yeah, of course. Um, really varied and kind of roller coastery career, I guess, like most people in our world, I would think. So I've worked in the public, private, voluntary sectors, both in and out of sport as a volunteer, uh, as a part-time member of staff and as a full-time member of staff. So played my chosen sport, which is football, but sort of at the age of 16, realised I was never going to be uh, the next Premier League superstar. So, you know, really kind of knuckled down and did the whole school, college, university thing initially to be a PE teacher. Um, and that was all grounded really in just a, a love for want to try and help people. I've been really lucky that at every juncture throughout that period, whether that be at school or college, university, any of the teams that I played for, there'd always been one sort of standout person who'd helped me. Um, and I guess I just wanted to be something similar for, for other people. So yeah, I started coaching, if, if it can be called that, uh, when I was about 14. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but mum used to work at a primary school. So I just got the chance to go and do some summer camp stuff and and just loved it from there. So, yeah, started coaching properly from 16 at a sort of multi-sport company, um, doing some stuff in schools and, and again, summer camps and so on and so forth. And it kind of grew from there, really. Um, my first proper, what I would see as a coach development type role was actually a, a non-league football club that I was coaching at at the time. Chairman was incredibly forward thinking, really great guy. And he wanted to bring in some support for the coaches who were working um, and supporting the kids working in the um, in the pathway, if you want to call it that, or in, in the team that fed the, the non-league club, so to speak. Um, so I just kind of stepped in and did, did a few bits, group sessions, and then one-to-one working with coaches. And gosh, that was some time ago now. That was probably my first taste of coach development as we know it, and uh, absolutely loved it. So. And those bits around um, people development, so that sense that... Um, the person that you're supporting or how you were supported through that journey as well that seems to come across as being sort of a, a central theme and is that I'm assuming that sort of has informed your journey moving on into into coach developer world yeah uh, yeah absolutely um I think the one uh, the one thing that all those people had in common whether that be again you know the coach that I can think of back in my younger days playing football or whether it be you know the one particular PE teacher that I had that I can think of or the university lecturer who gave me the kick in the right direction when I needed it um, or, or actually you know past line managers who have taken a chance on me as a professional in our industry or whatever the one thing was that they just cared um, and I guess that just just that general sense of really wanting to try and do the best for other people is the thing that sticks with me all the time that's the one thing that I always try and do and I guess um, sometimes that means putting your hands up and saying actually I'm not the right person to help you around this particular thing so let's get the little book out and find somebody who might be able to help you better than me but yeah that, that would be the one thing really that underpins everything that I do I guess is just an overriding love for 
helping people um, and wanting to try and do the best that you can to to help them. Yeah, and I suppose you know knowing knowing your journey a little bit myself, but how did um, how did your journey through coaching now then evolve into um, into coach developing? Um, so I suppose just the latter part of your career into where you are now. If you just give us a feel for for how that happened, so I'm interested across all of the different podcasts that we're doing, how do people get to the place that they are now? Because it's quite varied when we chat to um, people who are in coach developer support roles now. But I think the, the sense of where they've come from and what shaped that that journey is really interesting. Okay, yeah. Um, my first role in the industry was with the Youth Trust and it was a full-time volunteer position. You know, when I finished university, there was no jobs really that I uh, had the well, I didn't feel I had the skills to to kind of go and take you know we know that most of our learning in life comes from just doing it you know training on the job so to speak so I figured well what what better way to kind of learn my trade and learn my craft than uh, volunteer my time and and kind of get out there and have a go at it and try some stuff out see what works and see what doesn't make some connections and all that kind of thing so yeah the first sort of couple of years really in industry was in a sport development type role simply in one thing which was try and recruit train and deploy a bunch of young people in Sheffield um, and give them the opportunity to work at major sports events um, and help them develop some life skills and equally you know as a byproduct of that I was developing my own life skills and, and career skills so that was the the project really so kicked off with that worked on that for a few years eventually amazingly actually we, we ended up going to the Olympic Games London 2012 and we took a bunch of 18 young people from Sheffield who might never have had the opportunity to do that. Um, and, and we ended up all going there. We camped for three and a half weeks together. We cooked our own food together. We ended up being the, the courtside volunteers at, at the Olympic final. And then from there, moved into the world of coach coach education. Um, so I'd always coached, you know, again, from the age of 16 officially, I guess, all the way through to now, still coach now participation, non-league as we call it in football and then in the professional game. Um, but alongside that was obviously trying to establish a career as well. So I moved to work for First of Sport for a while, working with national governing bodies to um, develop their coach education programmes and courses. Um, and then a few years later, found myself at the Football Association uh, in a, a learning design and curriculum development role. Um, so we kind of in the space of a, a few years between us, we re redeveloped the, the the entire coach education pathway and revamped the whole approach to learning and, and assessment and then yeah about 18 months ago joined UK sport in learning design curriculum design development role and then the other half of the role is is one-to-one -one support of um, Olympic Paralympic summer and winter podium coaches primarily so so yeah that's you know, very briefly that's kind of my uh, my journey. Brilliant and you know what then starts to come through there having talked about people first yeah yeah I think I was I wasn't quite counting in terms of how many times you mentioned learning but it's uh, <laughs> three or four times in that sort of last two three minutes um and I know for sure that you know that is something that is definitely again shaping your world right now and um you've you know we've been present in a couple of things together as, as sort of colleagues in the same room where you've been talking about that um so I really just like to dig a little deeper into into your interest in learning science and sort of what sparked it initially, and then we'll delve a little deeper in terms of you know the 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 work that you've been doing around it and how that's informed um, coaching practice in general for you, but also for yourself as a coach developer. So the start question would be, you know, what sparked your interest in it? Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, I guess just being a bit of a rebel and uh, always wanting to bend rules, you know, I don't often take things at face value. I always try and either dig a little bit deeper or play devil's advocate. So that would be the start point. So with that, I, you know, I'd been on a bunch of coach education courses, as most of us have. Once upon a time, you know, I was encouraged to go and uh, collect as many badges and certificates as I could, which I'm not sure was the best advice back then. So I've got God knows how many level ones to my name and all this stuff. But, you know, I guess I'd been on all these courses and I'd heard lots of stuff. And, and then obviously I'd moved into this role at First of Sport. Where I was then responsible for working with sports to design and develop learning programs, I guess, for, for coach education courses. And then, you know, later on with the FA and now at UK Sport. There was lots of stuff I was collecting along the way that I wasn't sure I trusted it. And if I did trust it, I wasn't quite sure where to place it or how to use it. Or, you know, I felt that um, I perhaps gathered lots of superficial knowledge along the way. And I was trying lots of stuff out in my own coaching practice, which is my kind of little learning lab, I guess. You know, I have the freedom and the luxury of working with some amazing young people, some really talented young footballers. And and therefore, you know, I have the opportunity to try these things out and, and see what works and see what doesn't work. But if I'm honest, Andy, for me, there's a, there has to be a limit to that. Uh, and that's not something that's imposed on me, I guess. It's just it's just my own belief that, you know, partly my role, I believe, as a coach is to help these young people be better young people, you know, better citizens for society, first and foremost. And in turn, of course, support them to be better footballers, because one of the many reasons why they uh, drag themselves to the training ground multiple times per week to play and practice is because they have an aspiration of being a professional footballer. And in turn one of the many reasons why their parent or guardian supports them to do that is because they want to sort of share that dream and, and help their help their lad do that. So for me, just to sort of willy-nilly be throwing things around, trying stuff out, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, with little care or attention, I guess, to the uh, to the impact or effects that might have on their learning development. Uh, well, it just didn't, you know, didn't seem right. And from being brutally honest, it's for me, it's just a little bit disrespectful. So I guess I almost wanted to make sure that what I was bring into the table if you like was you know at least evidence informed so I had a, a good idea that what I was doing was actually going to help uh, rather than possibly you know doing more harm than good um, and I read something the other day about this this idea of um, called it the cobber effect which is where well-intentioned interactions interventions whether as a coach coach developer or, or whatever end up having unintended negative uh, impact on others and certainly from a learning perspective. So put all that together and I just thought, well, I mean, heck, there's obviously lots of stuff that education's done from a, from a school perspective that is proven to work or is certainly well evidence informed. Surely, you know, we should be reading about these things and trying these things out and playing around with this stuff and better understanding how how it works or doesn't work in our world of sports coaching, coach development. There was a, some research came out a few years back that said um, chewing gum or, or chewing gum it is proven apparently to help academic achievement so there was a study done that said if you chew gum then you um, can essentially retrieve information better and perform better in tests and then when you read under the surface you realize that the research was commissioned by Wrigley's so it's the same principle you know you get taught something on a course that's delivered by or facilitated by a, a perceived expert and then when you dig under the surface yourself and you, and you kind of get to the, you know, you do it firsthand rather than hearing it secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, you realise and you can make your own judgment on what is and isn't useful or what is and what isn't helpful. And yeah, that's kind of where it all came from, really. That's what sparked the interest. And now I'm doing my own research into this world. So, yeah, it's kind of gone full circle. Uh, yeah, and I think, I mean, so much of that 
resonates with some of the challenges that I imagine coaches, well, and everyone faces at the moment with the vast quantities of content that is currently available during this lockdown period. Um, I know we've been speaking in some of our coach developer conversations about how do you filter out stuff so there's lots of there's lots of content and there's more content available now than there probably ever has been freely available you know so that filtering process you mentioned sort of judgment professional judgment about what what is good and maybe what is less reliable how do you go through that process how do you engage in reflective conversations with possibly other people in your network to help you decide on those things in reflection in terms of the work that you've been doing, how how has what you've learned about learning shaped either what you've created in terms of um, programs for coach development or shaped your own practice? Mm. What's been what have been some of the, the key things that have influenced uh, the way that you design or work yourself? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really good question. I, I guess um, I'll start by saying that, that, you know, back to the network that you just mentioned, that that was also probably one of the first things that kicked off this interest in in uh, in learning science or, or in, you know, educational psychology and how that relates to our world. Um, I've got some great colleagues around me. Yeah, having had conversations with them, it, it sort of started to place some of those things that I mentioned before that I collected along the way and perhaps hadn't managed to place before. So, um, but I, how is it? How has it informed my practice? You know, there's lots of stuff I've been reading and playing around with to inform the basis of decisions. Obviously, in our world, we work in incredibly collapsing timescales often, and just having ammunition in my back pocket, I guess, to try and help inform the decisions I'm making. Um, so again, we don't get into the, fall into the trap of doing more harm than good. I guess would be the, the overriding feeling. That's what how I'm trying to use this stuff anyway, as best I can. I guess from a program, from a program lead point of view, as somebody who kind of designs programs, facilitates programs for groups of people, you know, just remembering that what the learner already knows is arguably the single most important factor in what they're going to learn. So what knowledge they bring to the table, what experiences they've had are really important. So when designing programs and facilitating learning, knowing that and trying your best to understand where they're coming from, what their view of the world is. Um, what baggage they bring with them, um, what you might need to help them discard, what you definitely want to build upon because it's already fantastic is really important. So, you know, from my point of view, I guess I've seen it from both sides of the coin. You know, I've worked, again, I worked at the FA where we had circa 30,000 learners a year going through a level one coaching course and now work at UK Sport and, and you know, lead a program which is really, really targeted and bespoke for a really small group of either current or future head coaches in the Olympic Paralympic world-class program. So what you can and can't do to um, recruit, um, pre-screen and get to know those coaches is obviously going to be very different based on numbers and volume. You know, what what we would do at UK Sport arguably would be impossible to implement for a level one coaching course in, in football or, or rugby or cricket or something like that where the numbers are relatively high. Um, but I mean, for us at UK Sport, we we work really hard to recruit the right people. We speak to the performance directors. We speak to, you know, our our talent um, identification and development team. We speak to the the, you know, the coach development, leadership development, people development staff within the different sports to get a feel for who the right people to come on the programs are. Um, we would then put them through what we call practice centres or assessment centres, as you might know them which essentially gives them an opportunity to play out a scenario without the real life consequences 
coming out the other end of it, uh, which gives us a better idea of kind of who they are, what they're about, where they're at um, in terms of their knowledge and skills. And we'd also have some kind of really clear prerequisites, which we'd stick to uh, and that would, you know, that would be respected. Um, so that, that would be that would be one. Another one might be when designing a curriculum, it, it's important that we kind of revisit content ongoing. Um, so it's no, there's no point in just writing a curriculum or designing a program whereby you, you, you visit a, a particular topic or a concept once and then never see it again, because the chances are that learning might not have stuck or it might not have been embedded or, or whatever. So it's important that you kind of almost zoom in and zoom out of content and zoom in and zoom out of certain concepts and, and topics to get into more detail and gradually build up the complexity of, of a particular area that you're trying to explore. And then obviously trying to build time within the programme to then allow those coaches a chance to go away and put this stuff into practice and make sense of it. Ideally, if possible, uh, with the support of a coach developer so they can help and probe and ask questions and, and again, try and help the coach sense make. So they would be some, uh, some, some tips, I guess, or some ideas that, that I've played around with that seem to work. And there's a bunch of, you know, from the stuff I've been reading and trying out as well, there's a bunch of uh, evidence-informed methods or heuristics that are used in general education that are proven to be useful. So things like use of concrete examples. So in order to bring a concept to life, then you might tell a story or use um, an analogy or, or model it, you know, to bring it to life. So that would be something else. Or again, this idea of spaced learning. So building in time in a program to give people a chance to make sense of it and give them, give them the headspace to actually make sense of it. That might be something as simple as making sure you have a decent lunch break. Um, you know, we all fall into the trap of wanting to rattle through content and, you know, should we, back, should, let's, should we have a 15 minute working break? Well, that doesn't give people the time to, to digest it, think about it, chat with the mate over a cup of coffee and try and make sense of it. You know, again, thinking back to um, my FA days, we, we made a conscious effort to build in at least a week between some of the workshops on a level one coaching course, for example. So it gave learners the chance to understand a new idea or a new concept and then take it away and, and coach their kids and have a go at it and see how it worked and then bring some things that went well and some stuff that didn't work out so well and have a conversation about that next time. So that was that was another really simple way we did that. Uh, another method you might want to you know think about using would be something like dual coding. So again, when trying to bring something to life, you know, using verbal cues, but also nonverbal cues to try and support people to to receive that information in a way that makes sense for them. Again, not to be confused with learning styles. Um, and then just, yeah, mixing up topics and content and ideas, which kind of goes back to this idea of a spiral curriculum or web learning, bringing back concepts, mixing concepts up in different orders, because we know, you know, learning is not linear. You know, you don't you don't go on a linear trajectory to learn something and get more and more complex you need to kind of maybe take a step back to take two steps forward or, or whatever it might be so this idea of interleaving and, and changing up the content and the order of things um, so yeah they, they would be some of the things that I would maybe think about when designing a program and, and you know the obvious ones would be steering clear of some of the pseudo-scientific ideas that um, have been presented to us um, by people like you know Kirshner who's or, or maybe closer to home people like Richard Bailey we were all well versed in this space around pseudoscience and neuromyths. Um, it's suggested there are 70 odd learning styles. Well, A, they don't exist. And then secondly, even if they did exist, how would you even use them? If there's 70, how do you 
chop and chop that up and help people to learn by attuning to 70 different learning styles all at one time if you've got a group it's you know pretty impossible so and then there's you know the, the idea of this idea of digital natives you know we we think that young people are natively great at working on digital mediums uh, in fact there's research out there that tells us that if you've got life experience and you're therefore able to receive a novel piece of information and connect it to an experience you've already had to better place that content and make sense of it by making and breaking connections with things that you've experienced you know throughout your life there's more chance of you being able to again place and connect that piece of information to something that's relevant for you and make sense of it you know there's there's ways and means that we have to be really careful about and very considered about how we design learning um and and just because technology is more prevalent than than ever before and young people have uh, potentially grown up in an environment where it's been all around them it doesn't mean that we have to use it or it is the best way for them to learn clearly there are many many opportunities amazing possibilities for technology to be included in in learning um, and there's you know numerous countless examples of that all over the world but equally i, I do see a lot of organizations jump into uh, conclusions around the use of technology um, and i'm sure we can all think of versions of this story but only recently I went through uh, you know an online learning module and in my um, <laughs> in my wisdom decided that I'd try and break it just because I wanted to see uh, how robust it was so I clicked play on the video and I walked downstairs and, and made myself a, a cup of coffee walked back upstairs and you know lo and behold I'd passed the learning module and I'd learned zero and, and I've, look of course I'm, I'm sure there'll be some people listening to this going well you, you know should have more motivation to learn. Should have um, talk, taken more responsibility for my own learning. I, I kind of, I get, you know, I get all of that, and I do, you know, I understand that there is a, an onus placed upon the learner to be motivated to learn. Um, but equally, we have an onus as learning designers to entice them and encourage them and motivate them to learn as well. Um, and, and therefore, the way that we design and structure learning opportunities is critical to help motivate them. Yes, of course, they. They have a part to play in that, a massive part to play in that. But some of the things I've come across from a digital point of view have been less than poor. Um, we've just got to be really careful about how we use it, where we use it, why we use it, uh, to, to ensure that we get the best out of it. That, that would be my point. And I guess the other one that um, I'd just like to raise as well is around assessment. You know, there's there's this uh, there's stigma that assessment's a really bad thing. And I fundamentally disagree. For me, assessment is one of the key tools at our disposal to help people learn if it's used in the right way so assessment for learning you know uh, this idea of um you've got a map you know where you want to go but you need a compass um and the compass could be assessment for learning you know checking in sense checking ultimately to try and help support the person we're working with to navigate their own ship using coordinates towards a point of destination um, and, and if assessment for learning is one way of help, you know, helping them get there in one in one piece um, and haven't had a good experience and learned something, then great. Linked to that, though, we probably need to check that they've got there. Um, and, and one way of us doing that might be assessment of learning. Is that, I don't know if that helps or if I've just rambled on. <laughs> no, I mean, what, what is what it's doing is it's really showing how your sort of the lived experience of working through. Um, you know your work area with UK Sport actually what that means for you and a couple of things just to pick up on so that 
the sense making part of this i just want to delve a little bit because i know you play a, a dual you mentioned it you play a dual role on on the program in terms of leading and designing it but also playing a coach develop a role with some of those coaches and when you talked about helping coaches or supporting coaches to make sense of content um i wonder if you could just share how you go about doing that because it's a crucial part um in lots of different programs and you know even if uh coaches operating in lots of different areas of the pathway making sense of what is out there and possibly having conversations with others colleagues people in their coaching team to to help that sense making process but i just wonder how you go about doing it maybe with some of the coaches um that you directly work with what does that what does that process actually look like uh, just, just digging deeper into what, what does sense making look like for you yeah it's messy um and it looks different for every coach when working with a coach one-to-one number one would probably be uh, in no particular order would be feedback you know the art of giving and receiving feedback in a way that is well received and well intended um so there's lots of different you know frameworks and uh, rubrics out there that we can use to do that but this idea of being able to give and receive feedback with positive intent is really important. I think, you know, we know feedback is one of the most powerful tools for learning. That that would certainly be something that I'd always have up my sleeve. And the way that that's generated and, and offered, uh, again, would depend on the coach. Uh, but importantly, the coach needs to want to receive that feedback before I even think about offering it. So that, that would be that would be something else to think about. Uh, another one might be something around, you know, scaffold, you know, this idea of scaffolding and fading support. So, again, each coach is different. They're all in different places. I mean, I think about the coaches that are on the programme I look after at the moment for UK sport. We've got current head coaches that have been to four Olympic Games. We've got winter coaches potentially going to their first games in, in Beijing. You know, it's whether I'm operating as a coach or as a coach developer or exec coach and mentor in a corporate space, whatever it is. Um, it's just people first. It's all about people and, and how they tick and trying to get to trying to kind of understand how they tick will shape how I scaffold or fade the support, I guess. And then lastly, just decide, you know, again, I said it at the start, you know, I am definitely not an expert in most things. Um, I'm not sure I'd refer to myself as an expert in anything, actually. So this idea of having a community and my own little book um, of contacts and networks and encouraging coaches and certainly the coaches I work with, encouraging them to be in a community of practice um, with peers is incredibly powerful because, you know, and I always say this when I start a coach education course, you know, just because I'm wearing the badge, I'm stood at the front of the room, it doesn't make me the expert. The knowledge, the power of knowledge is in the room. You know, the people I'm supporting and working with and helping have more experience of coaching in their environment of largely in a grassroots environment than, than I do. So, let's build in those conversations and, and, and give them chance to share their stories because they're the experts in their own right, not, not always me. So, so yeah, just, you know, the third one would be as a coach developer, just remembering that if there's a time and I need to put my hand up and say, listen, I'm just not the right person. Um, you know, I might, but I might not be the best person. So let's try and find out together who that might be and, and go in a slightly different direction. So yeah, again, don't know if that helps, but it doesn't just uh, leading on from that. It's something that, um, cropped up so ed cope was uh joined us on our coach developer session last week i'm talking about reflective conversations and we got into conversation with the other people on the on the call around um 
going into sporting environments that you're not familiar with. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's any football coaches on on the UK sport program. Yeah. Um. So, and you'll probably be supporting coaches from sports that you're not particularly familiar with, and certainly mm. not an expert in from a technical tactical point of view. Mm. I just wonder if you could share what that um, feeling of working in a sport that you're unfamiliar with, and what um what it actually affords you in terms of opportunities to work, possibly in a different way. Yeah, it's, you know what, it's um, the opportunity to get outside of my world of football was really important. And I wanted to go and see what other sports did selfishly for my own coaching practice. But secondly, you know, just felt that there was a whole world out there to learn from that I wasn't necessarily getting the opportunity to access. I think the first thing that always goes through my head when I'm going into any sport. So, yeah, you're right. There are no football coaches on the programme I look after. Um, they're from you know trampoline and parachuting through to track cycling and skeleton ski and snowboard you know so that they are completely diverse um, summer winter para and olympic sports the one thing that goes through my head every time is what are the norms and how should I behave in this environment whether that's in a, in a training or practice environment or whether it's at a competition or at a camp and um, that's the first thing that always goes through my head. And, and every sport has its own nuances. And so that would be my start point, Andy, is what are the acceptable norms? So if I'm working in track cycling, then this is where I need to be. These are the spaces I can and can't go to. These are the sorts of places. These are the sorts of things that I can do in this environment um, or what, you know, whatever it might be, which is very, very different to Craig and Canoe Slalom, who, who I know spoke with some of your guys last week, uh, and understanding what they are is critical, I think, as a coach developer to make yourself as invisible as possible, but also as helpful and as useful as possible. Um, so yeah, that that would be that would always be my go-to as a, as a first point of call. And then once you get into um, conversation, sense making, you know, we we talked again, we talked to, uh, last week around being able to ask naive questions and what a naive question might look like. Um, you know, how to not necessarily how to ask them, but um, the ability when you're not coming from a perceived uh, level of expertise within the sport um, for you to just be able to frame questions around can you just explain why why you're doing this uh, just mm. you know just can you describe what's going on here because I don't necessarily know about it do you, do you have those moments and does that provide really interesting insight for you yeah look absolutely um, you know I go in there armed with the greatest gift of all, Andy, um, in that I'm able to step into spaces that other people can't. So those people that are perhaps embedded or entrenched in a sport and therefore, you know, more regularly feel the political, cultural, environmental constraints that might be placed upon them because of that environment, both positive, but also, of course, not so positive at times, that, you know, they perhaps can't spot or observe certain things because, you know, they can't see uh, they can't see the wood for the trees because they're so in it every single day. They're, they're like I just mentioned, they're sort of ingrained in the in the everyday life of that particular sport. Where I'm not, you know, I'm I'm in there on a semi-regular basis, so I can take a bit more of a helicopter view and perhaps spot some of the things that might be perceived to be quite simple and obvious, but they're not, and they're not because people are again they're in it, doing it, and totally embroiled in it uh, most of the time. Um, I also think that you mentioned about asking the naive question. You know, yeah, of course, working across um, you know, multiple sports, but also multiple environments affords me to ask that sort of a question as well. I mentioned, and you well know, that 
I still do some tutoring and, and coach educating for the FA. Um, and then with that comes the opportunity to do some coach development work in situ in, in largely in grassroots and in non-league clubs as well. Um, and just because my background is football and I've coached in participation sport, again, non-league and then in the pro game as well, I obviously have that technical tactical, as you've just described it, all that sport specific knowledge and understanding. So that sport or that working across that within that sport doesn't I don't have a great deal of affordance because I'm in it most of the time myself as a coach and then you know sometimes as a coach developer but working across different environments still affords me the opportunity to ask the so say naive question because again I mentioned it previously that particular coach may well have been doing that for 15 years so they probably have more experience of working in that environment than I do and even if they've only been in it six days I'm still able to go into their environment with a helicopter view because I'm not wrapped up in the day-to-day or the, the week-to-week of, of what their club environment looks like. Whatever sport or environment is I'm working in, it affords me something. Simply being a coach developer, entering into that space um, as a guest, if you like, um, affords me a lot of things. I think um, I think with that, it can, it can be perceived as, be, you know, the naive question might be perceived to be the, the sort of silly, stupid or daft question. Um, and that's not what it is at all for me. You know, if I'm, if I'm a coach and a coach developer supporting me, and if I think they're operating in a sort of a silly, stupid or daft way, then being blunt, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how long they would last in, in my coaching environment because the club, you know, the club would probably ask them to leave. And if they didn't, I, you know, I'm not sure how I would respond to that. I mean, people's time is really precious, isn't it? So we have to make the best use of it wherever we can. So even though, you know, the questions that we ask might be perceived to be relatively simple and, you know, in my experience, there should be and, and there is a hell of a lot of thinking that goes behind how we're going to set up, package, um, land that message or that question, that prod, that probe, that that prompt, uh, that nudge. You know, what, how is it that we're going to strike that coach in a manner that gets them to think critically? And ultimately, that's the goal, isn't it? How are we going to get them to do that? How are we going to get them to do that about the thing that we want them to think about? Um, that's that's the ultimate aim. So I don't think we should, um, you know, sort of uh, do ourselves a disservice by pretending that what we do is off the cuff and a bit ad hoc, because in my experience, it's not. And I, and I you know, I hold my hands up. I've been guilty of that. Um, but, you know, linked to that as well, I think the reality is that we get to go into other people's environments and we, you know, shine torches on, on paths that might take people in a different direction, or at least shine torches on on the the rocks that might trip them up. Equally, we're able to shine torches on the stuff that's already brilliant, and we can you know we can fall into this trap of, of feeling the pressure to go into other people's environments and and find a problem and and offer a solution and sort of you know give them this golden ticket to, uh, to you know to this magical kingdom if you like of opportunity to make things better overnight, and it's just. Um, I, you know, again, in my experience, it's just it's just not how it is at all. Uh, if anything, we we should be patting people on the back and getting them to celebrate their successes. You know, again, so if I think about a participation environment example, often the coaches that I work with in grassroots have an hour with their their kids or their adults every week. So there isn't a great deal of time a to build a relationship with that particular coach to even be able to think about generating and offering any feedback, although we you know, clearly do as best within the, the constraints that we've got to work within. But linked to that, you know, first and foremost, it's just about getting them to recognise the stuff that they're doing really well and they need to carry on doing it. You know, that might be the thing that helps the 
the, uh, the, the people that they're working with, the participants that they're working with, go home with a smile on their face, having learned something and, and want to come back next week. <laughs> and if that's the aim, you know, working with the coaches in the world-class programme, the reality is that whatever it is that's going to make the boat go faster or the sled run quicker uh, or, or, you know, the bike, the bike go faster around the track, that, they're, they're the things that we have to go after. And I think that's what potentially working across different sports and or different environments could afford coach developers the opportunity to do is it could provide the opportunity to shy away from those types of conversations. It perhaps makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. Um, but that, again, is is something that we have to accept as as coach developers, because whatever it is, it's going to help us achieve either and or both of those things is a thing that we have to go after. So if that means entering into um, you know a conversation about or dialogue about uh, the sport specific things or, or technical tactical things then so be it and I, I hear lots of people talking about separating the, the the how to coach and the what to coach my experience as a coach and as a, as a coach developer tells me you can't do that and even if you did do that I'm not sure how helpful it would be because we know that we can't divorce practice from context anyway uh, and linked to that you know the one thing I would say that you know moves with me whether it's whatever sport I'm working in, whether it's participation or, or performance environments or anywhere in the middle in the pathway, let's say, is uh, uh, knowledge and understanding and appreciation of pedagogy. There are lots of similarities we can draw upon in every sport and in every environment if we recognise pedagogy as a point of connection. And if we use that point of connection to, again, spark a conversation to get a coach to think critically, then that might be the in that we need to then you know, build from there, if you like. You know, we talk, we talk about knowledge as, and I mentioned it myself earlier, we talk about knowledge as being this really powerful thing um, and something that we can use to, to our advantage at times. And of course, again, I, I said earlier that every you know, everybody comes to anything in any walk of life with a view and it sees the world through a lens. And that lens is uh, is usually made up of the experiences that people have had throughout their life. So they they view the world in a certain way because of the experiences they've had. And more often than not, those experiences are an amazing asset because they're able to then recognize a, a situation in front of them. They can think about something that they've dealt with in the past that might be somewhere similar, if you like, uh, or something like. And they can sort of retrieve that information and, and use that information to help solve the problem or, or deal with the challenge that's in front of them. But sometimes that, that knowledge can be uh, almost a curse in that it can hinder them and it can hinder them because they might recognize a situation and then almost find a solution based on previous experiences. This maybe worked in the past and that's fine, but then there may well be a more efficient or a more effective way of doing that. Sometimes as an expert, they might miss out some of the learning process for the people that they're working with. So if they're a coach working with a participant or a player athlete who um, has less expertise or knowledge and understanding around a particular topic, that they're trying to help teach them or coach them, if you like, they they may well slip into the trap of becoming so automated because they are an expert in that particular thing that they miss out bits of the learning process for the for the relative novice that they're working with. And so we're able to um, spot that and observe that and, and sort of cast a net across that and then help them pull that in, sift through it and, and pick out which bits of it they need to perhaps you know uh, do better next time and of course again in turn which bits of that process they did brilliantly and they need to kind of continue doing and so 
you know, if nothing else, our role in in my in my humble opinion, for what it's worth, just to finish off, is that I, I believe our role is to be a catalyst or to support the acceleration of the person that we're working with learning and development. And there's loads of ways we can do that. And so the the better relationship we have with them, the better we understand who they are, where they're coming from, what their view of the world is, what their habits and their, their biases and their preferences might be. And in turn, the quicker and the more accurate we are at being able to identify where they're at within their sport or their environment. In turn, then work out how much load we need to place upon them to, to kind of get them into that optimal learning zone. And then select an appropriate method uh, or an appropriate pro, um, approach to support them as best as possible. That, for me, is the essence of what coach development and coaching is. Um, and when you say it like that, it sounds quite quite simple, but we all, we all know it's obviously not. Uh, and if nothing else, Andy, this, this conversation's uh, definitely made me reflect on my own practice and just made me realise, not that I didn't know it already, but you know, just reminded me how how complex what we do is and just how much uh, learning and development I've got to kind of do personally um, um, as well. So, I mean, we've had a pretty good sort of, not whistle stop necessarily, we've been going uh, 40 odd minutes now, but a good in-depth journey around, you know, what shaped your practice and what your practice looks like. Um, I, I, I'm mindful that we that we try and keep things a little lighthearted towards the end as well. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering, having asked Craig, um, and I need to... Um, I need to name check Elliot Newell in terms of giving me the idea around top trumps. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm keen to follow this one up, A, because I used to love playing it when I was younger. Um, I, I'm going to try and get a panini sticker version of this question as oh, well. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, nice. But if, if, there were, if we had a coach developer top trumps set, uh, what would be on the Jay Roper coach developer card? <laughs> um I'd probably, um, I probably, I wouldn't be a shiny if I was a panini sticker. That is for sure. And I'd oh, definitely no be the one. Oh, no, no gold, no, no gold foot. I'd be the one that everybody's got a thousand of that they're trying to swap in the playground. I, I don't, I really don't know. I mean, I, I, the one thing that I try and live and buy, live and die by all the time is this idea of authenticity. You know, I am what I am, and I'm totally comfortable that I'm not an expert in everything, and I'm really happy to hold my hand up and say that. Um, and again, I said it earlier, I, d I don't even know if I'm an expert in anything, really. I'm trying really hard. That's probably on my top trumps card, actually. Try hard. I'm a, I'm a really hard tryer. Um, so, yeah, authenticity would be on there. I, I have no idea what the score would be. We're pretty high, I think. Hard tryer uh, would definitely be on there. Explorer, you know, if we're going to keep it work-related, Explorer um, can often be very disruptive. I think the, one of the consistent themes across my top trump set would be curiosity. So someone's curiosity mm. rating. I think would be a good a good uh, sort of title for one of the one of the cards. I mean, it's clearly yeah. it's in process and will be copyrighted fairly soon. But <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I think yeah, curiosity explorer. Um, maybe put them under the same banner. Definitely use the word curiosity though, it's better than explorer. But yeah, some I would definitely be up there in terms of continuously trying to push boundaries and and learn. Really, that would be up there. I think below average golfer would probably be on there as well. Yeah, well, I can, I can join you on that one then. <laughs> Brilliant. Jay, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, 
thank you so much for for joining us sharing your world sharing your journey hopefully it's it's provided some useful um insight for people listening um you know we've mentioned coach developer conversations that are happening at the moment on a friday morning if you're keen and interested then please do check all the stuff we're putting out on social media um, and on connected coaches as a coach developer group on there but uh, just uh, another thanks thank you thank you for joining us um have a good rest of the day cheers andy, cheers, andy. Come on. join us at ukcoaching.org whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.